This is the fifth episode of The Gerrymandering Project, sponsored by Blue Bottle Coffee. The democratic process can be complex and even confusing, but you don't want to miss a thing. So it's important to pay attention and stay alert. What better way than with the most delicious coffee around? Blue Bottle Coffee. I'm talking about coffee that's so delicious, so flavorful, you'll realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your whole life. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash politics for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash politics. Just a note before we begin, there is a swear word in this episode, so for those of you listening with kids, we wanted to make sure you weren't caught by surprise. Okay, here's the episode. In Memphis, there's an area called Midtown, and Midtown is younger people, more liberal ideologies, more hip. Picture in your mind where you live, your town, your city, your neighborhood. What makes it feel like a community? They all have similar interests in the sense that they care about the outdoors. Is it the schools that you go to? Anchorage School District is a very big part of Anchorage, even if you don't have children. Your cultural, ethnic, or racial background? I think that collective memory of growing up in the Soviet Union very much is something that defines my community. Do the folks around you work in a particular industry? It's based on trains. Like, if you look at where the commuter rails are, that's probably the best way to kind of delineate. Or worship at the same place? There are certain, like, Jewish community centers, like art museums. Do you share common traditions or values? It's like right before all the flags turn Confederate. I think it's it's probably at something of a crossroads. What makes your community your community? There is a grocery store called the Park Slope Food Co-op. It has a delivery radius. I think that's the community. Okay, now if I told you to draw it on a map, could you do it? Looking at your community from a bird's eye view, what are the confines? What is definitely in your community? What's definitely not in your community? Can you draw the line? That's one of the key ways California drew its political boundaries in 2011. By asking citizens around the state what communities they wanted to include in their congressional districts. Welcome to the fifth episode of The Gerrymandering Project. We're traveling around the country to look at the effects of gerrymandering and how reformers hope to change the redistricting process. California is one of six states where an independent commission draws the lines instead of lawmakers. Arizona, which we looked at last episode, is another. But California stands out as arguably going further than any other state to try to remove partisan politics from the process, a stated goal of many people frustrated with gerrymandering. We introduced the Redistricting Reform Act so that we could once and for all try to remove politics from the redistricting process. The commission was charged with drawing lines based on existing geography and so-called communities of interest. And it was up to Californians to define those communities in public hearings. But politicians are Californians too. And they had their own interests to look after. What caused California to create its commission did not have to do with the same old partisan type of gerrymandering. It has much more to do with protecting the incumbents. The way they draw the district lines is to protect the incumbents. That's, well, I'll let him introduce himself. I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I was governor of the state of California from 2003 to 2011. He backed redistricting reform as governor. 
and has since continued to advocate for it. I'm a big believer that we must terminate gerrymandering in America. California lawmakers used to redistrict with the goal of protecting incumbents, Republican and Democratic alike. California used to be an incumbent's paradise. That's Dave Wasserman, editor at the Cook Political Report and 538 contributor. In the previous round, after the 2000 census, the Democrats who ruled the legislature farmed out the task of redistricting to an incumbent congressman's brother, Howard Berman's brother, Michael. And each member of the delegation wrote him a check. In 2001, former Democratic Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez told the Orange County Register that all but two of California's Democratic members of Congress paid Michael Berman $20,000 apiece to draw their preferred district. He drew a map that protected not only the Democrats in the delegation, but made a pact with the Republicans to preserve Democrats' 33 to 20 seat majority. Sanchez went on to say, quote, 20,000 is nothing to keep your seat. I spend 2 million every year. Here she's talking about money spent campaigning. She also says, quote, if my colleagues are smart, they'll pay their 20,000 and Michael will draw the district they can win in. Those who have refused to pay, God help them. When you look at the district lines, the way they're drawn, they make absolutely no sense to anyone. But it is all designed to keep Democrats separate from Republicans. This strategy for drawing maps created an environment in which lawmakers felt entitled to groups of voters they saw as beneficial to them, without much regard for existing communities or geography. In Los Angeles, for instance, Koreatown was split into three or four districts. The Filipino-American community was split in two. Kathy Feng is the National Redistricting Director of the nonpartisan group Common Cause. She's also its executive director in California. During the 2001 round of redistricting, she testified to the legislature about how the line should be drawn to keep Asian communities whole. As we traveled up and down the state, we were hearing these stories about people feeling, for the first time, the importance of talking about their communities. Feng says during the process, she got a call from a Democratic assembly person. I had received a phone call from a legislator from San Francisco. And it was my first time talking to, you know, assembly person or a senator. And as a young attorney, it was quite exciting to receive this phone call. And this person called me to essentially tell me, Kathy, you're not going to put another fucking Asian in my district. I asked her to identify the lawmaker. Carol Migdon. She's out of office now, so I guess I can say her name. It brought me to tears because it was a realization that we still have a lot of racism in this country. And even in a very blue state like California, people come to power with a sense of entitlement that allows them to make decisions about excluding people based on race in order to protect their own seats. When reached for comment, Carol Migdon said she did not recall the conversation. In the end, it was clear that the legislature was not interested in considering public testimony like Fang's. What we found out was that after four months of public hearings, the legislature went behind closed doors and drew the lines that they had always intended to. The California Senate passed the maps on September 12, 2001, and the Assembly passed them a day later. While the rest of the nation was rocking from this terrorist attack that had happened, And there was essentially a media blackout. Quite honestly, there was a real moment of reflection about whether or not our democracy is functioning. 
their incumbent protection plan was overwhelmingly successful. The deal that was passed in 2001 made California's map almost impervious to change. The 10 years during which the map was used was a volatile period in American politics. It saw the Iraq War, the 2008 financial crisis, and two historic political waves in Congress. Democrats dominated in 2006. The blue wave that swept Democrats into control here in Washington into Congress also had a big impact on state legislatures and, of course, the governor's races. And Republicans made a comeback in 2010. This is the moment the Republicans have been waiting for and the Democrats have been dreading. During that time span, there were 265 regular House elections in California. 265 opportunities for an incumbent to lose a seat. This to me is unbelievable. Only one incumbent lost re-election in a general election between 2002 and 2010. California had insulated itself from the political volatility facing the rest of the country. Few of the races were even close. You had 265 U.S. House races in California. Only 14 of them were decided by less than 10 points. Just 5% of California's congressional elections were competitive. I always said, you know, that the Soviet Politburo had more changeover than our system here in California. Rather than push their luck and try to gerrymander their way to a bigger majority, California Democrats chose to make maps that entrenched their existing majority while also protecting their Republican colleagues' seats. Here's Justin Lovett, associate dean for research and a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. For decades, California legislators essentially took care of themselves, favoring their personal interest, and then, at a rough second, their party's interest, over and above the public interest. Californians were far from satisfied with their representation. In the mid-2000s, you had an anti-establishment fervor in California that was reaching fever pitch. You had had a governor that was recalled. You had a Republican moderate governor in Arnold Schwarzenegger who was agitating against the legislature. We traditionally in California had a very low approval rating of the legislators. It was down as low as sometimes in the 20s. The legislature's approval rating bottomed out at just 10%. I know from sports, I learned a lot of my lessons from sports. If I go out and lift in a weightlifting competition or powerlifting competition, and there's no one there, just me, I can guarantee you that I would not perform well. It's just human nature. But if there's someone there that lifts the same weight, then I have to outlift him, and I will lift 10 10 pounds more. And that person then will try to outlift my 10 pounds, and then I have to go 10 pounds higher. And this is how you, through competition, then create great performance. By the mid-2000s, the time was ripe for reform. Well, when I became governor of California, this was the last thing that I thought of, was that I ever would get involved in redistricting how the districts were drawn. This is the crowning moment of the evening for a man who has won in the California recall for the first time in the state's history and only the second time in the country a governor has been recalled. But after a little over a year in office, Schwarzenegger backed a ballot initiative that would turn over the process to a panel of judges. California is one of 26 states with ballot initiatives that bypass the legislature and put laws straight to the voters to decide. Every incumbent legislator gets reelected every time. I can't get a job and they can't lose theirs. 
I don't know about all these other propositions, but if the legislators hate Prop 77, I'm for it. The legislature was not happy. One day, it was like a month before the election, I got a phone call in the evening, and on the line were both leaders, the Democratic leader and the Republican leader. And that to me was kind of unusual that both of them would be on the line and especially calling from a bar nearby. Because four hours before, we had a meeting in the office and they were spitting at each other and they were screaming at each other. But now the party leaders were on the phone playing nice with each other. And uh, they were on the phone as a governor. You have endorsed this idea of uh, redrawing the district lines and uh, doing it differently and all this stuff. We are totally against that. They put their money where their mouth was. Stop Prop 77, the politician's power grab. It's a bad idea for three retired judges, handpicked by politicians, to redistrict the 37 million Californians. And the initiative was defeated. But Schwarzenegger said that was a turning point for him. I started now studying this more carefully, and then the more I got into it, and the more I saw how bad it was, the more I became a fanatic about it. After Kathy Feng's experience in 2001, she was also pushing for reform. Initial ballot and lobbying efforts failed, so she and her colleagues started writing a new law themselves. It would turn over the redistricting process to an independent commission of 14 Californians. Schwarzenegger got on board. His joining the campaign ultimately helped launch an effort with a large bipartisan coalition as well as uh, some funding to be able to gather the signatures. They again put it to voters through a ballot initiative. The whole thing attracted all kinds of spending and attacks, particularly from congressional Democrats. Opponents say Prop 11 undermines democracy by giving the final say to a commission unelected by the people. It was all-out war because they tried to protect the status quo as much as they could, and it was Democrats and Republicans alike. But eventually, voters approved changes to the way the state legislative and congressional maps were drawn. It's safe to say that California tried as hard as it could to remove politics from the redistricting process. The legislation that Feng lead authored made a point of keeping politicians out of the process. It began with how the commissioners were chosen. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, you had to fill out this initial form, which was quite long. That's Vince Barraba. He was chosen to be one of the 14 commissioners from a pool of over 30,000 applicants. You had to apply and be vetted, and eventually chosen by a lottery. Names were put into a little basket, and the state auditor rolled it around. Three Democrats, three Republicans, and two others were chosen at random. And then those commissioners picked six more people to intentionally diversify the commission. As a point of comparison, the commissioners in Arizona were chosen by party leadership, not at random. And you remember how that went. Damn it! You can't get any more partisan than this! The California commissioners came from all walks of life. Baraba was one of the five Republican commissioners, and he also happened to be the former director of the U.S. Census. There was also a bookstore owner, a stay-at-home mom, and an urban planner. The law that created the commission had all the usual guidelines about how the districts should be drawn. Equal population, contiguous with a regular shape, and in accordance with the Voting Rights Act. It also had a few more. One, commissioners were barred from drawing maps that favor any given party, candidate, or incumbent. And two, instead they should focus on drawing lines that do not divide existing cities, counties, or communities of interest. 
One of the things that we wanted to lift up was this notion of communities of interest. My personal experience in working with the Asian American community was a motivating factor for making sure that community voices were heard. It's about making sure that representatives have something to represent. You're the representative from Los Angeles. You're the representative from the Central Valley. We have representatives from a certain area, not by happenstance, but because we think there's something to representing a group of people from a particular area who probably have stuff in common. It wasn't required by law, but in order not to inadvertently draw lines for partisan reasons, the commissioners agreed not to look at data like voting history or party registration. Unlike Arizona, they weren't charged with drawing competitive districts, so they didn't need that data. The Citizens Commission went all around the state, sat for hours of testimony in, frankly, very boring settings, and listened to testimony from citizens who advocated for what they saw as communities of interest. So who showed up, and what did they say? There's a 90 to 99% higher concentration of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals in that area. I'm not here as a partisan for politics. I am here as a partisan for San Joaquin County. Our people are bound together as a community of like-minded residents. We are artists, musicians, entertainment professionals, and writers. It also includes areas that have a zebra farm, an ostrich farm, and a 70-acre horse farm. My name is Grace Yu, and at the time of the California redistricting process, I was the executive director at the Korean American Coalition in Los Angeles. You worked to lobby the commission to draw district lines that would keep Koreatown whole. You've got to understand, some of these folks had been preparing for like two years to get everything ready and present in a a good manner. Plenty of groups like the Korean American Coalition organized and gave testimony to the commission. But there were other people who showed up who weren't exactly community groups. My name is Paul Mitchell. I'm the owner of a company called Redistricting Partners. Political consultants. So my clients ranged from groups like Equality California. I had Brad Sherman, who was an incumbent congressman, as a client. I had a labor union in San Jose as a client. Obviously, there were incumbents who were scared to death that they would lose their political base or that it would be chopped up into pieces by the commission. Lawmakers and interest groups hired Mitchell to influence the commission's map drawing. But remember, districts could not be drawn to favor politicians or parties. So consultants like Mitchell couldn't just outright ask for a good seat for a politician. His suggestions had to be masked in the language of the criteria. You have to be able to know what versions of districts are good for your client and have evidence to go before the commission and say, this district, maybe 60 miles away, is better for the Latino community. It splits less cities. Knowing that there's a kind of a domino effect, and if you can get districts drawn in a certain way within a region, that you're going to ultimately put the commission in a process of drawing the district that you want in a better fashion. He would come up with publicity strategies and draw proposed maps. One of his clients was Congressman Jerry McNerney. He did hire me to analyze a number of different options, help them understand that, yes, in fact, a San Joaquin district could be Democratic if it was drawn this way. They realized that keeping San Joaquin whole would likely create a district McNerney could win. We created a Facebook page. We, we did that in order to create a little bit more publicity for it. We provided to the commission maps and data 
around the idea of keeping San Joaquin whole. Congressman Jerry McNerney did not respond to a request for comment. Different politicians and interest groups had different concerns. I also had members of Congress ask me for things like keep all my defense contractors in my district and keep these businesses in my district. I have a specific example from a local redistricting where uh, somebody made me redraw a redistricting plan because they didn't want their ex-wife in a district. Um, But yeah, I don't have a good one for a congressional that wouldn't like get me in trouble. Mitchell was not the only person who was employed to lobby the commission. We know that there were meetings in Washington where staffers and Congress people sort of met from the Democratic delegation to discuss and sort of coordinate what they were going to ask for. Olga Pierce is a reporter at ProPublica. She investigated the California Commission for about a year during 2011. We were really interested when the California Redistricting Commission uh, went into effect. You know, if you call a commission, who is actually going to show up and testify and what are their motivations? Redistricting hearings probably aren't at the top of a lot of people's to-do lists, but politicians are very directly affected by the results. So you can bet they're going to try to find a way in. In 2011, ProPublica published a report looking at attempts by Democrats to try to influence the commission. Republicans, for the most part, stayed away. Here's Matt Rexroad, a Republican redistricting consultant. The leadership within the party said that we shouldn't be engaged in this, that it was a hands-off sort of deal, and we should just stay away. And, you know, I went to a lot of these commission hearings, and I watched the Democratic Party and a lot of Democratic Party officials who were very engaged in the process, and I would say that they certainly out-hustled the Republicans in 2011 on redistricting. It was up to the commissioners to discern which testimony was in line with their mandate. Here's Connie Galambos Malloy, one of the Democratic commissioners. For myself, as one commissioner, I was very wary of that there were a number of times where we would get submissions where it was clear that there had been an entity that had, you know, reached out to their networks and said, say X to the commission. Again, here's Vince Baraba, one of the Republican commissioners. You could kind of tell when somebody's reading from a script versus somebody's got some strong feelings about what they're discussing. But there was a lot of testimony, and drawing that line could be difficult. The commission heard about 2,700 speakers and received about 22,000 written submissions. We pulled down all of the emails that were sent to the commission, and we actually did a text analysis using fancy computer techniques to look for phrases that occur over and over again. And we found that about 80% of the emails that were sent appeared to be you know, groupable. Meaning that chunks of text were the same throughout the emails. Somebody had probably told a bunch of people to write the same thing. But even knowing that, it doesn't necessarily mean that those submissions were out of line with the goals of the commission. There's reasons for people to organize. And when it's a reason that relates to the criteria that we were considering, we paid attention to it. It's hard to imagine the commissioners could always tell the difference. In one example, the commission received stacks of the exact same submission, lobbying to keep certain communities in the foothills of the Angeles National Forest together. One of the common interests? Horses. People had some pretty kooky ideas about what a community of interest was. There needed to be a horse people district for, I guess, horseback riding enthusiasts. But if you look at a zoning map of L.A., you see that in fact those neighborhoods are specially zoned for people to have horses. Who's to say whether or not that's a legitimate community of interest? 
And how do you know whether there is some underlying motivation? Those communities ended up being largely kept together on the congressional map. One of the classic examples was there were busloads of people that came from uh, southeast Los Angeles to argue before the commission to not split LAX. And none of the commissioners understood why the public was so focused on not splitting LAX in the redistricting plan. Uh, my joke was, you know, the horror of landing in one congressional district and your luggage is all the way over in another congressional district. It made no sense. The Los Angeles airport shows up plenty in submissions to the commission. Suddenly, in late July, the commission began receiving numerous urgent emails about one specific neighborhood in the LAX noise mitigation and soundproofing community of interest. We were part of a regional coalition that had to come together to get a soundproofing program and some accountability about late night flights. The neighborhood was Vermont Knowles, a one square mile neighborhood among many in the LAX flight path. Do a little research and you'll find out that that's where Congresswoman Maxine Waters lived. She'd been drawn out of her district. But the commission couldn't do research like that. They were barred from looking at incumbent addresses. Which was good on one level, given how redistricting works at their places. But it also meant that when somebody showed up and said something, it was hard for them to assess whether it was for political ends or not. The lines around Vermont Knowles were not changed to accommodate the soundproofing community. And today, Maxine Waters does not live in the district she represents. So how successful was the commission at keeping communities together and getting rid of partisan politics? We'll break it down with the data in a minute. But first, a word from this episode's sponsor, Blue Bottle Coffee. Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, hasta la vista to gerrymandering. Well, how about saying hasta la vista to subpar coffee? Blue Bottle Coffee is so delicious, so flavorful, that you'll realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your whole life. Simply put, Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee on the planet by working directly with growers all over the world. And talk about taking freshness seriously? Check this out. You place your order online, and boom, within 48 hours, your beans are roasted and shipped right to your home. So your beans are at your door at peak freshness, no sitting on a store shelf for weeks. And you never have to worry about flavor because Blue Bottle has something for everyone's taste buds, from the lighter fruit-forward profiles to the deep chocolatey espressos. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com politics for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. And while you're there, remember Blue Bottle Coffee makes a great gift. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com politics. That's bluebottlecoffee.com politics. Okay, let's return to California. So how successful was the commission at keeping geography and communities whole? Academics have tried to quantify it. Here's 538's Harry Enton. What this paper essentially found is that when it comes to cities, it's pretty clear on the state legislative level that there were fewer city splits. Political scientists Vladimir Kogan and Eric McGee compared the number of divisions of cities and counties in the 2011 maps to the ones from 2001. 
However, on the county level, it does not seem that the commission's plan really improved that much on the county split. McGee and Kogan also looked at the compactness of the districts. No matter you're looking at the Assembly, the state Senate, or the congressional level, the compactness was improved. Of course, that begs the question in my mind is why is it that we're so concerned with compactness? I, I think it's because we like to see pretty little districts drawn up. But communities of interest oftentimes can be elongated. In a different study, Nick Stephanopoulos, who we talked to in our second episode about Wisconsin, assessed communities of interest by measuring the homogeneity of the districts. He looks at race, age, income, education, profession, marital status, and housing. And what he essentially wants to do when he looks at that measurement is to say, okay, are communities of interest better kept together? And the way you see that is if there's less diversity on those different measures. The results were pretty conclusive. The new plan did a far better job of keeping communities of interest together. That is, the diversity dropped considerably from the old plan to the new plan in 2011. So I think that there are a lot of communities that have found themselves with a new ability to elect candidates of their choice and have candidates who are responsive to them. Again, here's Grace Yu. They were able to provide a new rendering of the state maps that kept Koreatown whole and unified in one congressional district, one state senate district, and one state assembly district, minus a couple of blocks. There were some notable places where communities were not kept whole. They took the African-American community and they cracked it into three different districts. So all three African-American congressional women could um, have a little piece of the African-American community. Matt Rexrode, the Republican redistricting consultant, says the commission broke up the African-American community in L.A. more than was legal and that it was an attempt to bolster the support of three different African-American lawmakers. The commission wasn't willing to follow the law. They just simply ignored it for political expediencies. It is worth asking whether the goal should always be to cluster similar voters in the same district. It's one of many value choices in the redistricting process. Although Rex Road has his criticisms of the commission, he doesn't oppose it. But overall, I think the commission was the right thing to do. I just wish they would have implemented the process better. And even if the commissioners do follow all the rules to a T, they'll still have to divide some communities, cities, and counties in order to keep others whole. They have to because of requirements like equal population. Are there winners and losers in the redistricting process? Yes, because no matter how you draw the lines, you can't perfectly represent every single interest. So the commissioners, as with any decision-making body, are tasked with a difficult decision. By various measures, the commission did a better job than lawmakers at creating cohesive maps based on keeping communities whole. But what about banning politics? What we did in California and what we were obsessed about was to get it completely away from the politicians, take that power away from them, and give it back to the people. There's disagreement over how much influence politicians had during the process. We can definitely identify places where politicians asked for something and more or less got it. For example, Jerry McNerney now represents the district where his consultant lobbied to keep San Joaquin whole. Commissioner Baraba says that doesn't necessarily mean something went wrong. If they get what they wanted and it was consistent with what we were required to do, that could have happened, yes. Malloy says they also weren't solely relying on testimony. 
There were times where we also were privy to more objective data of different regions, um, whether that was about kind of the local economies, um, local demographics, local kind of environmental issues or assets. All told, it's not hard to imagine that political consultants had some degree of influence on the commission. Paul Mitchell says that's how it should be. They argued that changing redistricting commission was going to take politics out of the process. It didn't. It moved the politics to an external place where people like me are going to have an opportunity to influence the outcome. And that overall, it's a much better process than having it behind closed doors. He says that should be acknowledged and incorporated into the process. I wouldn't be opposed to and actually think it would be a benefit to the process for there to be more reporting and maybe even more of a professionalization like we have with registered lobbyists for people who are advocating before the commission. Kathy Feng is less eager to welcome political consultants. There are some behaviors that cross the line and we need to be extra vigilant about it. So even if you think that the commissioners are too stupid to figure all everything out and could get blindsided by some external, well-paid, well-heeled lobbyist, there's one more layer of review. She says that if the parties or lawmakers really do have too much influence over the process, Californians can sue. The law, after all, prohibits making decisions based on incumbency or partisanship. But she also acknowledges that lobbyists like Paul Mitchell will try to sway the commission. We're not trying to say that we're creating a process that somehow scrubs everything clean. We live in the world that we live in. So for the Asian American community that I worked with in 2001, we went to hearing after hearing, and it didn't make a damn bit of difference because we didn't give the kind of money, we didn't have the kind of access, we were not a voting block that people needed to pay attention to. And in 2011, the difference was a small community could come to the commission and their voice would be heard just like somebody who had a paid lobbyist. At least we were at the table. The ultimate test for California's new set of maps was whether it would break the incumbent's stranglehold on state politics without benefiting one party over the other. It is 11 o'clock on the East Coast. We've got poll closings in California, Hawaii, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. 2012 was a political earthquake in California. Seven members retired in 2012, and seven members lost re-election. In other words, the maps passed the first test. There was a striking degree of incumbent turnover. More than 25% of California's delegation was new in 2013. We hadn't seen that kind of sea change in two decades. And 2012 was not even a wave election. The rest of Congress had a turnover rate of only 18%. As to the second test, Democrats did benefit overall after the new maps were drawn. In 2012, they picked up a total of four new seats. Democrats have since picked up another seat, so they're at 39 seats to Republicans at 14. But that's not necessarily an indication that Democrats had undue influence over the process. One way to judge the fairness of the congressional maps is to use the efficiency gap, a measure that we discussed in the second episode about Wisconsin's Supreme Court case. According to an Associated Press analysis done after the 2016 election, California has almost no efficiency gap on the congressional level. In other words, the two parties have almost exactly the number of seats you'd expect 
based on the votes they receive. Did it tilt unfairly towards Democrats? No, it did not. Did it tilt unfairly towards Republicans? No, it did not. So if Democrats did influence the line drawing, they didn't do so in a way that gave them noticeable electoral benefits. As far as competitiveness goes, the increases have been modest. Since the initial 2012 shakeup, only one seat has changed parties. That's true. But the opportunity has been there. These races have been closer than they used to be. We've seen the competitiveness of elections triple since this new map was installed. During the last decade, 5% of House elections were competitive. In this decade, it's been 15%. Competition equals performance. I know that from sports. I learned a lot of my lessons from sports. It's also very likely that there'll be incumbent turnover after the 2018 election. The national environment is heavily favoring Democrats, which could lead to the first major political swing since the new set of maps were drawn. It's possible Democrats could hold 45 seats in California. We'll see how big a wave washes up in California. But keep in mind, the commission did not have the goal of drawing competitive districts. In fact, drawing districts based on communities of interest or voters who share commonalities is in some ways the opposite of trying to draw together equal splits of Republicans and Democrats. That also might have been tricky in a state like California that's overwhelmingly Democratic. I'd argue that California's done a better job of removing politics to the extent possible from the process than other state commissions have done. Wasserman gives the California Commission high marks. The fact is, redistricting has important implications for a lot of people, incumbents and parties definitely included. They will try to find a way to influence the results, and it may very well be impossible to stop them. I think the best that we can do as a democracy is to find people who do not have a direct self-interest in the outcome to do the best thing that they can. I think that there are some people who are saying, well, you know, you have this process, but it doesn't really exclude politics. Who said that it could? You know, it's almost it's unrealistic. In fact, Matt Rexrode is encouraging Republicans to be more involved the next time around. Yeah, I hope Republicans will learn a lesson from that. But will they? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to be engaged and I hope other people come along. I don't think they'll make that mistake again. So hopefully the commission will be better equipped for the onslaught that I think will occur and they'll be ready to be skeptical about what people will show up and say. As we've learned throughout this series, redistricting is a complex process full of trade-offs and difficult choices. There are some things that reform can fix, but there are others that it likely won't. That's a difficult story to hear when the loudest voices are calling for a wholesale end to gerrymandering. I always shoot for perfection because, uh, you know, my whole philosophy in life always has been shoot for the stars. And then eventually you may not get to the stars, but you will get as high as possible. Why, you know, settle for less? California set its sights high, and by many measures, it did improve its system. To some extent, both Republicans and Democrats agree. The data definitely does. We may not reach perfection, but we may reach a much better system than we have now. No political map will ever achieve every goal, but there are plenty of improvements that can be made. Remember Angela Bryant from North Carolina. Democracy is messy and a lot of work, 
it's a full-time job for some, somebody, some set of bodies to help keep it going. As the Terminator says, the mission goes on. Next week in our final episode, we'll take stock of what we've learned in this series and talk about some of the ways that other countries tackle redistricting. This episode was reported and produced by me, Galen Druk, and edited by Chadwick Matlin. Our politics editor is Micah Cohen, and our intern, a.k.a. associate producer, for this episode was Kate Bakhtiarova. Tony Chow is in the control room, and Ann Pope did the engineering and scoring. A special thank you to Jody Avergan, David Walserman, Vanessa Diaz, Luisa Cardoza, Shala Farzan, Annie Chelsea, and Joanna Broder. Remember to check out our Facebook group, The Gerrymandering Project, where you can share your experiences with gerrymandering, ask questions, and help answer some of our questions. Go to Facebook and search The Gerrymandering Project. You can also get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com or, of course, send a tweet. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store. When you leave a rating, it helps our ranking, which helps others discover the show. Or just tell someone about this series. We'll be back next Thursday with more of the Gerrymandering Project. Until then, thanks for listening. Listening.